Corner Fringe Ministries presents Discovering Your Calling into Israel, Part 2, by Daniel Joseph. Enjoy. Last week we had talked about your sacred calling into a holy nation. And we discovered a couple things. Number one, that the Gentiles who are called into the faith, right, they in no way have replaced Israel, what is known as replacement theology. The Christian church is not the new Israel. Go back to Paul's metaphor and we discover he metaphorically describes the process of what happens to the Gentiles who are actually coming into the faith. And he states, that, said, listen, they are a wild olive tree cut out. So they're a wild olive branch and they are grafted into the tree of Israel. That's how the process works, thereby partaking of the same root, the root of David. <clears throat> Excuse me. We also discovered that the Gentiles who are coming into the faith, they are not in any way called to a different body, what we commonly call dual covenant theology, or what I prefer to call a separatist theology. A separatist theology that states, hey, when the Gentiles come into the faith, well, the Christian church has one way of worshiping God. We have one covenant with the God of Israel. But while the Jewish people are sitting over here, they have a separate covenant with God. A separate covenant. They have a different way of life. Okay? Because of this theology, a great division has been created. Which is why Paul spent so much time to, in, in his epistle to the Ephesians explaining the process, dealing with this issue, telling them exactly what Yeshua came to do. Yeshua came to break down that made a wall of separation. Where formerly, remember, the Gentiles who were separated from Israel... When they were over here, they were not called the sons of God. What were they called? Strangers, foreigners, and aliens. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers of the covenant of promise. But now, because of what Yeshua did, both the Jew and Gentile, through faith and the Messiah Yeshua, have now become one new man in him. Amen? Now, unfortunately, what the Gentiles have been called to, this beautiful, this sacred, this holy calling, this calling has been stripped from them. It has been taken. The adversary has gone out and he has sown seeds of division, seeds of separation. And that beautiful, that, that wall, that beautiful thing that Yeshua did, he broke down that wall. Satan has gone out to rebuild. And regrettably, if you look at mainstream Christianity, you quickly realize that, by and large, she has succumbed to the lies of Satan. She has forsaken her Hebraic roots, and she has separated herself from Israel. Mainstream Christianity, as we see it today, I know this may be hard, it does not resemble the church in Acts. Hello? So it begs the question, what happened to the church? Why does the church of today look so different than the one I read about in the New Testament? You might say, Daniel, oh, how so? How is it different? Well, for starters, why is the mainstream Christianity meeting and making a holy convocation on the first day of the week when God of Israel commanded that that holy convocation is to be on the seventh day of the week? Why is Christianity celebrating festivals, feasts, with pagan roots? 
pagan origins rather than the feasts that I read about in the word of God that have been ordained by God and commanded by his voice. Why does the church not distinguish clean from unclean? Referring to the dietary laws. What has happened to the church? How could the church have gotten so far away from her Hebraic roots to the point that they actually find it strange when you tell them, hey, I'm going to synagogue or I'm going to church on Shabbat or Sabbath. They find it peculiar that you would actually take a day off in the middle of the week to celebrate, to sanctify a holy festival such as Pesach or Yom Kippur. The apostles kept all these things. People going out to build the first century church, they kept these things according to the word of God. We are going to be keeping all these things in the kingdom to come. So today, we're going to look at some of the church history. And by the end of the day, I think you're going to have a little bit uh, better understanding of what has happened. Why the church is practicing these things. Things that cannot be supported in the Bible. Why she holds to theologies that are literally in direct conflict to the word of God. I want to begin today by taking you to the book of Acts. And I want to do this because... You need to see that the first century church, from the very beginning, had come under attack. It was to come under attack. The Apostle Paul knew it, and he gives the following warning. He says in Acts 20, uh, 20 verse 29, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, also from among yourselves. Listen to that. From among, this is the warning. From among yourselves, from within the church. Think about this, the first century church, from within the church, the person sitting next to you, deceptive heresies are going to come. This is what he is saying. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Does Paul seem to be concerned about false doctrines here? I would say so. Considering it says that for three years to the, to the Ephesians, night and day, meaning constantly, relentlessly, warning them with tears, false doctrines are coming. Beware. This was at the top of his concern list. Further proof of this, Paul in his letter to Timothy, his second epistle, he advises him concerning the following. And this is what he states. Shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. So already in Paul's day, we find the men, they're coming in, with false doctrines, disrupting the church, and according to Paul, the heretical doctrines, they spread like cancer. And what is the effect of it? They overthrow the faith of some. It will. This is the effect of false theologies, false doctrine. It will cast them aside. They will become deceived. Now Paul, in the very same epistle, he has this to say. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Well, isn't that great? 
Instead of things getting better and better, the warning goes out, no, the imposters are going to get worse and worse. They're going out to deceive, and they themselves will be deceived. And because of the nature of this issue, this epidemic, Paul finds it necessary to reveal to Timothy a character profile. What wisdom? This is great wisdom Paul is using. He's going out to describe those who are in the church who will be sitting next to you, who are going to succumb to these imposters. In other words, he's coming out to tell you, this is what these people are going to look like. And here's the profile, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears. Make no mistake, you would never identify these people because they're itching their ears. This is a metaphor for those they want to hear what they want to hear. They will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and they will be turned aside to fables. Paul sends out a warning and details exactly what is going to happen. He states that there are some of those who are in the church that are going to fall to deception and they will not endure sound doctrine. Question, what is sound doctrine? Well, Interestingly enough, if we just read this passage, Paul tells us. Because in, in, in verse, at the beginning of verse 3, he says they're not going to endure sound doctrine. He says the same thing again at the beginning of verse 4. He says they will turn their ears away from the truth. So, truth is sound doctrine. What is truth? We go to the Bible, Psalm 119, 142. It says, your law, your Torah is truth. Go to verse 50, 151, it says all your commandments are truth. There are only two ways that the Bible defines truth, and they are both the exact same thing. And, and, and when we look at uh, Psalms, we find that truth is Torah. It is the law. We go to the New Testament, Yeshua, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How does this work? It makes perfect sense. Because he was the Torah made flesh. He was the living Torah. So here we find law is truth. But what's so fascinating about this passage that Paul's revealing, he's revealing the character of these, of these individuals who are going to be deceived within the church. He's grabbing from a passage in Isaiah from the prophet. Listen to what this prophet says. See if it sounds exactly like what Paul just told us. This is a rebellious people, lying children, who will not hear the law of the Lord. That is fascinating when you consider Paul just told us that the ones who are going to be deceived, they're going to turn their ear away from Torah, from the truth. And here we find that Isaiah says the exact same thing, only interestingly enough is how would you define a rebellious child? The one who will not hear the law of the Lord. That is a rebellious child. We continue, as the prophet says, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. We like that. We only want to hear what we want to hear, what Paul said in 2 Timothy, as itching ears. Therefore they heap up for themselves teachers. What did Israel do? They hung on the words of the false prophets. This was their downfall, rejecting the words of the true prophets that always went out and commanded, repent, return to the righteousness of God. 
Paul is warning Timothy. He's warning you and he's warning me. Listen up. Heresy is coming. Deception is coming to the church. You better beware. And this is what they're going to look like. Now, unfortunately, as we come into the early second century, we find that what the Apostle Paul had warned us about would truly come to pass on a grand scale like never before. Judeo-Christianity would be fractured, would suffer a mighty blow upon a man named Marcion. Now, Marcion, although this man was eventually deemed a heretic, 144 AD, that didn't stop his message. His message, his heretical message, went forth, and as Paul said, it infected like cancer. Tertullian, an early Christian um, apologist, he comments on Marcion and his doctrine. And listen to the words of Tertullian. He says, And Marcion found it easy to argue for a new and hitherto unknown divinity revealed in its own Christ. And thus with a little leaven has embittered with heretical acidity the whole mass of the faith. This statement shows that Marcion's doctrine, his theology, had infected the church like cancer, the whole mass of the faith. What was it that Marcion taught? Marcion taught that the God of the Old Testament, the God of creation, the very same God who gave the Torah to his children, Israel, well, he is not the God of the New Testament. He taught the New Testament was the antithesis to the Jewish scriptures, to the Hebrew Bible. And that Jesus, the point in Yeshua coming was to liberate from the hands of the wrathful God, the God of the law. And thus, because of this, a great divide was created with Marcion's teaching. A divide that separated law, Torah, from grace. Or the gospel message, that beautiful message of Yeshua. He went out and separated them. Listen to Tertullian's commentary on Marcion. This is found in Adversus Marcinum and basically means just against Marcion. Listen to these comments. This is church history. The separation of law and gospel is the primary and principal exploit of Marcion. Did you catch that? This is the principal exploit of Marcion to separate Torah from the beautiful gospel message of Yeshua. He goes on, His disciples cannot deny this, which stands at the head of their document, that document by which they are inducted into and confirmed in this heresy. For such are Marcion's antithesis or contrary oppositions, which are designed to show the conflict and disagreement of the gospel and the law, so that they may, further argue, so that they may argue further for a diversity of gods. This is an amazing statement. In other words, do you understand what Tertullian is saying here? The root of it all, for Marcion to argue that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament, the only way he could sell it is to build a foundation, and that was to separate law from gospel. Because then and only then could he sell this heretical teaching. That's fascinating. And let me further state if you remember last week, we talked about this separation of the Jew and the Gentile, dual covenant theology, hybrid versions thereof. I want you to understand something and listen to me closely. All of it comes from this teaching. 
In other words, for any of this to take root, for the Jew to be separate from the Gentile, the only way you're going to accomplish that is if you first separate the law from the gospel. This is the root of it all. Let's continue in his comments on Marcion. Therefore, as it is precisely this separation of law and gospel which has suggested a God of the gospel other than and in opposition to the God of the law. It is evident that before that separation was made, that God was still unknown, who has just come into notice in consequence of the argument for separation. And so he was not revealed by Christ, who came before the separation but was invented by Marcion. In other words, listen, Tertullian's saying, Hundreds of years after Christ, he is saying, listen up. This nonsense of separating Torah from the gospel message of Yeshua did not exist prior to Marcion. It was invented by Marcion. He goes on to say, who set up the separation in opposition to that peace. Did you catch that? That peace between gospel and law which previously from the appearance of Christ until the impudence or arrogance of Marcion had been kept unimpaired and unshaken by virtue of that reasoning which refused to contemplate any other God of the law and the God of the gospel than that creator against whom after so long a time by a man of Pontus separation has been let loose. Think about those words for a second. There was peace and harmony between Torah and Yeshua, the gospel of Yeshua. Only until Marcion came on the scene do we realize that separation has gone forth. Separation has been let loose. This was a pivotal moment in Christian history. A division was formulated. And this division was taught and it was accepted by many. With heretical acidity, it has infected the whole mass of the faith. I'd like to throw something else in here, a fun fact, maybe not so fun, but a fact nonetheless. Marcion was the first person to establish what is known as the canon of Scripture for the New Testament. For those of you who are not familiar with canon or what it means, it means when you state that it's been canonized, you, <clears throat> you officially recognize it as authoritative. In other words, you call it Scripture. The first canon of the New Testament came from Marcion. I want to show you what it looks like. This is Marcion's Bible. This was the Bible that would have been distributed and all the Marcionites followed. <clears throat> Notice anything missing? There's 11 books here. There are 66 books in my Bible today. There are 11 books here. The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, has been completely thrown out. Hence, the separation of the God of the law and the God of the gospel, who are the same, but not to Marcion. You look at this, we have to ask ourselves, are there any parallels whatsoever to Marcionism and to today's Christianity? I just, I just, I just want to throw this out there to give you some thought. What is the church's primary focus today? My experience, and I've talked to many pastors, many congregants. I grew up in an Assemblies of God church, very charismatic. 
What is the primary focus? Interestingly enough, it's these books. It's the writings of Paul. Now let me state, before I go any further, lest you misunderstand me and where I'm coming from, I cherish the epistles of Paul. I have poured over them. I have read them. I studied them. He is truly a man of God and he speaks truth. His words were inspired by the Holy Spirit. I love the writings of Paul. But what's fascinating to me is that all the focus for Marcion was exclusively on the writings of Paul. This is where I have a problem. And when I start looking at mainstream Christianity in general, this is not saying every single person in mainstream Christianity is bad. Do not put words in my mouth. I'm saying that by and large, the theological uh, doctrine that is taught and emphasis is put on these very books. And what's interesting, if you go to, I have a fascinating story, I'll just share it briefly. As a kid, I was sitting in a pew, and my parents used to make me bring my Bible. And at the time, I wasn't really hip on that, you know. But I have my Bible, and here it is, and I'm sitting in a pew, and I'm sitting next to my buddy, and um, he's got his Bible. And I looked, and I can remember, it was red, it was covered. I'm looking at his Bible, and it's this tiny little thin thing. I was like, what is that? He was like, that's my Bible. I was like, why is mine so much bigger than yours? It was a New Testament only Bible. That was the first time my eyes were open to people carrying around a New Testament only. And that kind of, that was my first, I looked at that and I said, that's really odd. And I thought about that for months afterward. I was like, why don't they read that? When I asked him, the, the response was, is, this is all I need. And so when you look at Marcionism, and you look at mainstream Christianity today, by and large, they have thrown out the law of God. They may even carry it around, but do they go to it to establish that which is true, that which is holy? Is it utilized for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness? As Paul instructs Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, is that what it's utilized for? With the separation of law and grace, which was perpetuated by Marcion, naturally came a division between the Christians and the Jews. Marcion had poured the foundation to a massive wall, a wall that Yeshua tore down. And from here on, moving forward, we find that that wall would only be built upon. If we jump ahead just a couple hundred years to the 4th century, we find that Christianity would appear to take a turn for the better, you know, because it had greatly suffered for generation after generation at the hands of pagan Rome. Christians were literally being persecuted. They were being tortured for their faith. They were even being killed under the bloodthirsty Roman emperors. And I think it's fair to say that Rome had showed anything but compassion for the Christians. But with the arrival of the 4th century, we find someone came onto the scene. Someone came to power that would impact Christianity dramatically. And I am referring to Constantine, commonly known as Constantine the Great. Came to power in 306 AD, and within just seven years of being in power, we find in 313 AD, Constantine met up with a man by the name of Licinius in Milan where they developed something known as the Edict of Milan. Now, this Edict of Milan is quite significant because it allowed the Christians to practice their faith 
without fear of death or persecution. In other words, it protected them for their freedom to worship. And thus, a new day had dawned upon Christianity. Um, however, if we look at this, and we really start to investigate it, you'll find that Constantine, he didn't seem to think that this religious freedom should include the Jewish people. And actually, we find at the Council of, Ni uh, of Nicaea in 325, he established exactly what he thought of the Jews. Listen to this statement. We desire to have nothing in common with this so hated people. For the Redeemer has marked out another path for us. To this we will keep and be free from disgraceful association with this people. I want you to see the separation that Marcion had built, that foundation that was poured. Constantine came right on the scene and built upon it. Because what did he do? He separated the Christian from the Jew. Something that Yeshua came and did the exact opposite. And Constantine doesn't stop here. It isn't enough to separate the Christians from the Jews, but he takes it upon himself to start enforcing holy convocations. Maybe that's where he gets his name, Constantine the Great. But listen to this. Stepping in the shoes of God here. On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and the people residing in the cities rest and let all the workshops be closed. Now on the surface, Constantine appears to give Christians the, the freedom to worship, but in all reality, he actually sought to create a whole new environment where pagans and Christians could come together and worship. You're looking at the first known edict requiring Sunday observance or sun worship. Still to this very day, we find modern-day Christianity meeting, observing Sunday as holy, the first day of the week. What is the problem with that? It's contrary to the Word of God. You as man cannot declare that which is holy. Only God gets to declare that which is holy. Your choice is either to identify it or to turn away from it. Let me read to you something out of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Catechism, it basically tells you what the Catholic Church, the Catholic Christian Church, does and why they do it. Very informative. Listen to what it says. We all gather on the day of the sun, for it is the first day after the Jewish Sabbath, but also the first day when God separated matter from darkness, made the world, and on the same day Jesus Christ our Savior rose from the dead. The Catholic Church is quite open about their observance of the day of the sun, which they themselves testify is the day after the Jewish Sabbath. Interesting how the terms start to work and start to develop. Well, now this is Christian, but to observe the Sabbath, is that's Jewish. Don't you find it odd when you tell a fellow believer that you're keeping the seventh day holy? That the response is, what are you, Jewish? How many times have you got that? What are you, Jewish? Well, let me read to you Paul's thought on the matter. Romans 2.26, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man, a Gentile, keeps the righteous requirements of the law. Now, I, I need to stop here. I can't let this go. If mainstream Christianity states that the law has been done away with, what is Paul talking about here? 
because I would not keep the righteous requirements of the law. Apparently, under that ideology and that belief, there is no law, so there's nothing to keep. But listen to what Paul says. If the uncircumcised man, Gentile, keeps the righteous requirements of the law, let me stop again. What does the law require? Righteousness. That's what it requires. Righteousness. Okay, now we'll continue. Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? In other words, will not this Gentile be called a Jew? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, there you go, the Paul's talking about fulfilling the law, something that's been done away with. If he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew. This is where you gasp. Paul just said that the Gentiles coming into faith in the Messiah Yeshua, he's a Jew. Can you believe that? He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. It's interesting that if I walk in the commandments of the Hebrew Bible, okay, if I walk like a Jew, those commandments, according to the New Covenant, have taken root in my heart. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. I will speak the law. If the law has been written on my heart, I will speak it. It will come out of my mouth. If I walk like a Jew, I talk like a Jew, I'm a Jew inwardly. My circumcision is of the heart through the Messiah, Yeshua. Listen to what the Catholic Encyclopedia has to say about the process, okay? About, uh, about the, the practices of, of Christians during the reign of Constantine. Not only Gnostics and other heretics, but Christians who consider themselves faithful. Interesting, did you catch that? Christians who consider themselves faithful held in a measure to the worship of the Son, Leo the Great in his days says that it was the custom of many Christians to stand on the steps of the church of St. Peter and pay homage to the Son by obeisance and prayers. When such conditions prevailed, it is easy to understand that many of the emperors yielded to the delusion that they could unite all their subjects in the adoration of the one Son God who combined in himself the Father God of the Christians and the much-worshipped Mithras. Thus, the empire could be founded anew on a unity of religion. This is scary. This is syncretism. This is bringing, this is bringing that which is unclean and mixing it with that which is holy. This is blasphemy. And you wonder why the church is observing things like Christmas, which, again, remember, I grew up observing Christmas myself, not knowing any better. The Lord is merciful. But understand why the Christian church is observing a festival of Mithra. You can take it all the way back to here. This was Constantine's great vision of bringing and uniting pagans with that which is holy. We continue. In the dedication of Constantinople in 330 AD, a ceremonial half-pagan, half-Christian was used. The chariot of the sun god was set in the marketplace, and over its head was the place of the cross of Christ. You got pagan elements, you got Christian elements. While the Kyrie Ellison, and all this was, was a liturgical prayer, 
while the Kyrie Ellison was sung, shortly before his death, Constantine confirmed the privileges of the priests of the ancient gods. Many other actions of, of his have also the appearance of half-measures, as if he himself had wavered and had always held in reality to some form of syncretistic religion. I agree with that statement. It's clear. Here you have the Catholic encyclopedia bringing out into the open the reality of the matter, the reality of Constantine, the reality of her. Even though he is often thought of as a great friend of Christianity, we find that Constantine's form of Christianity was more of a Christianity that welcomed pagan practices, all under the cloak of peace and harmony, as though to bring unity, but that unity would come at a great price at the expense of compromise, compromising what is holy, tampering with things that ought not to be tampered with. Let me take you to Deuteronomy 4.1. The warning has gone out. Now Israel, listen to the statutes and judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. There's an old saying, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. If you do not read the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, I fear for you. Those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. We shouldn't wonder why the church is celebrating Sabbath or not even, while they're meeting on the venerable day of the sun, paying homage we shouldn't wonder why they're observing different festivals with pagan origins, all the while forsaking the festivals found in Scripture. Ever wonder why the church no longer celebrates Pesach, Passover? Let me read to you a letter from Constantine. And this was specifically to all those who couldn't make it to that council at Nicaea in 325. When the question relative to the sacred festival of Easter arose, it was universally thought that it would be conventional that all should keep the feast on one day of what could be more beautiful and more desirable that to see this festival through which we receive the hope of immorality. Uh, immortality. <laughs> Freudian slip. <laughs> I did not mean that. Celebrated by all with one accord and in the same manner. It was declared to be particularly unworthy for this, the holiest of all festivals, to follow the custom of the Jews. This is the saddest thing in the world when you read this. Who had soiled their hands with the most fearful of crimes and whose minds were blinded. You see the anti-Semitism pouring forth? And rejecting their custom. Can I just say one thing? It's not a custom. It is a commandment of God. We may transmit to our descendants the legitimate mode, interesting, of celebrating Easter, which we have observed from the time of Savior's passion to the present day, according to the day of the week. We ought not, therefore, to have anything in common with the Jews. Remember that separation that Marcion started between the law and the gospel, which proved to separate the Jew from the Gentile? Here you're seeing it's just being built upon. For the Savior has shown us another way. Our worship follows a more legitimate and more convenient course. 
See, because Passover would never end up in the middle of my work week, disrupting my work. It's far more convenient just to have it on a Sunday. Let me tell you something. Giving your life to Yeshua will not be convenient. I don't know who told you that. Is this the exact opposite? I want to jump ahead another 40 years from the Council of Nicaea. We come to another council called the Council of Laodicea. And it's at this council they established 60 canons. One canon is being debated at the end, but that's irrelevant to today's message. For the sake of time, I just want to look at four of these canons, and then we're going to close. And I think you're going to find them quite interesting. In Canon 29, now these are decrees that people are to keep. Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but must work on that day, rather honoring the Lord's day, and if they can, resting then as Christians. <laughs> but if any shall be found to be Judaizers, let them be anathema from Christ. You know what this is saying? You are not allowed to keep a commandment of God that comes directly from Scripture. And if you do, you are cut off from the one who saved you. You're to be anathema. They are forsaking observance of God's righteousness. Let me also remind you that in Torah, Torah identifies the commandments found in her. They're literally said to be the voice of God. They are the voice of God. You can read Deuteronomy 28. The commandments found in Torah are the voice of God. Talk about turning your ear away from hearing the law, from hearing God. We go to the next canon, 37. It is not lawful to receive portions sent from the feast of the Jews or heretics, nor to feast together with them. Again, we see this divide is just being built upon to separate the self-professed Christians from the Jews. Again, let me remind you, we were called to be one with them. We were called to be one with Israel. And here, they're forbidding us to keep feasts with the Jews. Something God has commanded us to do. Something Yeshua came to do to break down the middle wall of separation. It's terrifying. Let's look at one more. It is not lawful to receive unleavened bread from the Jews, nor to be partakers of their impiety. It's fascinating when you actually read Paul's epistles two times in his epistle to 1 Corinthians. He commands them to observe Passover. The festival that God had ordained that came out of his mouth. He had commanded them to observe the festival of Passover. I think this is fascinating considering we're finding conflicts all over the place the practices of the modern-day Christian church are not lining up with that of the Bible. Old and New Testament, they're just not lining up. We'll close here. Shabbat Shalom.